Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello again, everyone. This is Joanna, and today I have the pleasure of introducing to you our next speaker, Dr. Alex Chorley, the Director of Continuing Professional Development in the Division of Emergency Medicine here at McMaster University. He's a clinical assistant professor at McMaster University and all-around great teacher. He completed his emergency training as well as his clinician educator diploma at McMaster University. And appropriate for the start of the new academic year, Dr. Chorley will be giving us some tips for teaching while on shift. Uh, hey everybody, my name is Alex Chorley. I am a fairly recent graduate of McMaster's FRCPC emergency medicine program. Um, I do have some extra training in, um, in education as a clinician educator. I did the diploma program through the Royal College uh, while I was in residency in my first year of staff. Um, and so I've gotten lots of great uh, tips and tricks from various mentors and through the diploma program about clinical teaching. Um, and so I'm working here in Hamilton as well as at McMaster Children's Hospital. Maybe before we get started, maybe we could just talk a little bit about the diploma program for people that might be interested in. Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, an area of focused competency through the Royal College. Um, most people will finish it in between a year and three years. It kind of depends if you have protected time or if you're working full time as staff. Um, there's a number of core modules and then some electives as well. You can choose from like leadership, research, simulation. Um, and then it covers the essential stuff like curriculum development, teaching and learning, assessment, all that sort of stuff. I had looked uh, at the diploma program and uh, some master's programs and I settled on the diploma, diploma program because um, it's, it's a bit more practical, I think. It allows you to do projects and kind of build uh, curricula and things like that so you can actually apply the theories that you're learning about. So I think pretty useful if anyone's got an interest in education or um, even just making some educational changes at their institution. Uh, so um, you were going to talk mostly about uh, how to approach uh, teaching on shift uh, with uh, junior learners and senior learners, medical students. You mentioned that it's a bit of a difficult transition going from the resident uh, level to staff level. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's one of the hardest aspects of becoming uh, staff in an emergency department. And I think we even felt that a little bit as senior residents when all of a sudden you're responsible for supervising and teaching junior learners as well. Um, so one of the approaches that I found most helpful, and I think a colleague referred me to this, was the EVSTAT uh, course or CME activity. And this is something that uh, was developed by Glenn Bandier and a few others, including John Sherbineau, who's a local educator, and is available uh, online. And so we'll give you the, the link in the show notes or wherever we're going to put them. Yep. And it's a, it is an acronym, which is always helpful. You know, just follow through. <laughs> I so, hated acronyms. Yeah, me too. They never work. But uh, in this case, so EDSTAT. So E stands for expectations. And so that's all about basically setting expectations for the shift. So when a learner comes in, um, make sure it's clear to them what your expectations are for them. So a med student comes in, you know, you're going to tell them you're going to review every patient with them. You're going to assign who they're going to see. If anyone is sick or more sick than advertised, come get me right away. 
and make sure that they're oriented to the department as well. So if it's their first shift, you might want to give them a bit of a tour, make sure they know kind of where the areas are, where the bathroom is. That's an important one too. <laughs> and then uh, if they have any questions, just make sure you're approachable uh, to them. And so I think that just kind of welcomes them to the department uh, and make sure that they feel comfortable uh, with you as their staff for the day. So that's kind of the first thing that I do when a learner comes in. And it gives you a sense too of what like where they are. So if they've done 12 shifts in the emergency department already, you don't need to do the full orientation, but maybe you can ask them kind of what they've been working on from shift to shift. And so have they been getting feedback on their presentations or their differential diagnosis generation? And so you can kind of pick up where someone else has left off because I don't know about you, but I feel like I see a new learner every day and it's just a one-off. So mm -hmm. um, it's tough to kind of give them a more like continuous feedback uh, they're just, they're kind of just getting snapshots from like one different preceptor at a time. Um, and so I think it's useful if you get a sense of kind of what they've been working on too. Yeah. I think that's excellent too. Cause it gives you kind of a primer for feedback. Like one of my, my I think a lot of us probably struggle with giving feedback, um, anything that's actually constructive and takes a lot of the load off and gives you something to focus on as a staff, as you're trying to, mm -hmm. trying to help them, uh, throughout the shift. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. Cause then you're not worried about just giving them feedback at the very end and then they like have no time to work on it and try and make changes for you. So yeah, yeah I think that's been very helpful. It's just setting up at the beginning. Um, so the next part is uh, the D stands for diagnosis. And so um, you can diagnose the learner and figure out what their educational uh, prescription is or kind of what the need is that they have to get to the next level in their training. Um, and then one, one kind of format I found helpful for that is the rhyme model. And so it's R-I-M-E, and it stands for uh, reporter, interpreter, manager, and expert, uh, or educator. And uh, sorry, it definitely stands for educator, not expert, <laughs> as I totally butchered the rhyme model. Um, it's helpful and just because it's very intuitive. I'm thinking, like, uh, is this person a good reporter? And so are they organized in their history and physical exam when they report to you? Or are they, like, totally all over the place and need some sort of intervention there? Are they good at interpreting what they found? And so they can get the history and physical and they're good at gen like generating a differential diagnosis and deciding on what tests are gonna help them decide what the, the, the most worrisome diagnosis is or the most likely diagnosis. And then manager is, can they you know, make appropriate management choices for common emergency medicine complaints? Are they handling some of the more subtle aspects of management? And then finally, educator is, are they an expert enough in whatever area to teach other people, so to teach junior learners? And so you can apply the rhyme model to junior learners as well as senior learners. And it's not static. And so like someone who's uh, a reporter for one case, because it's really challenging history, might be a good manager for a laceration and they're actually very competent suturing. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's pretty fluid in terms of where they're at, but um, I find it helpful to think about what they're doing well and then what the next step is gonna be. And so you can kind of apply your teaching to that. Yeah, I think that's somewhat easy to remember because it's and an adaptation of the Kamen's rules that are beaten into us to some degree, so at least the <laughs> clinical parts of those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something that the illustrious Dr. Sherman always says, I remember him talking to that to us about before, is having kind of some teaching scripts mm -hmm. uh, available or on hand. Um, maybe you could just let us know how you've kind of uh, adapted that to, to teaching and how you would suggest uh, people go about using those. Absolutely. Um, so a teaching script is like a little aid for you in teaching a common topic in emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. And so you're gonna see new uh, medical students and junior residents all the time. And you're always gonna be seeing chest pain and shortness of breath and syncope in the emergency department. And so sitting down and taking like 10, 15 minutes just to run through some good teaching points for those common diagnoses is really helpful because then you're not trying to reinvent the wheel every time you've got a new learner coming on. You're like, oh, what can I teach you about this case? 
um, you've got a quick set ready to go of, okay, this is a syncope case, so what am I going to teach them? I'm going to talk about what the differential diagnosis is, so I can probe them on their knowledge of that and then fill in some gaps. Um, what are mimics of syncope? And so telling them how it's important to differentiate from seizures. And then as their level uh, gets a bit higher, or if they've shown that you know they have good knowledge of all this stuff, you can kind of move on to more challenging questions. So what are some ECG findings that could be concerning? And you can go through BCGs. Um, what's your approach to working up these patients? Are there any clinical decision rules that can be helpful and are they well validated? And so just having a kind of set um, list of questions and teaching points that you can run through for common topics is really helpful and kind of offloads that stress of, oh, what am I gonna teach this learner for this case? Mm -hmm. And so, so when you have these kind of uh, scripts or just kind of a, a, a teaching points, uh, I guess you, for syncope, for example, you would kind of adapt it depending on the level of the learner. And you just have all the knowledge and everything available to, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, if they, you don't wanna teach below the level where they're at, because that's learners really don't respond well to that. It feels pretty <laughs> insulting when uh, when you're a PGY-5 and someone's going through like the differential for syncope with you. Yeah. And so, yeah, make sure you're tailoring it to what their level is at. And you might have to probe them a little bit first to see kind of what baseline knowledge they have, especially if you've never worked with them before. Yeah. Um, but definitely try and adapt it to their level of knowledge. That's actually another point. So, something that probably uh, uh, staff Maybe especially as they get a little bit uh, farther along and start, we start to lose some of the minutiae that we do in PGY-5. What's some of the best things we can be teaching the kind of upper level residents as they're approaching the exam? When they have mm -hmm. all the minutiae there, what would you suggest? I guess it would depend on the resident. It's kind of a difficult question. But. Yeah, it's true. And I think you have to get a sense of where that resident is at, uh, the same as you would for anybody else. But I think what's helpful um, as a senior learner, having recently gone through this, is um, getting taught about the staff's approach to certain presentations, because I think that's what makes you more efficient uh, in the emergency department is knowing what your approach is gonna be for a patient who comes in with asthma, knowing what your approach is gonna be for a young person who comes in with chest pain. And so not necessarily what's the differential diagnosis, but like how I work up this patient, because um, having those kind of um, mental scripts for a, a clinical presentation I think is useful. And I think that's something that um, experienced staff can definitely teach senior learners and then probing them on um, evidence for certain things as well. Yeah. Um, and so um, if you've been to a conference recently or you're reading up on um, an important topic, certainly you can try and share that knowledge with them or probe them on their understanding of guidelines or whatever else you've been reading. Yeah. And one of the, um, I think we emerged somewhat unique because we have staff coverage uh, with the residents up until, well, basically until the day of the mm -hmm. end of residency. Yeah. And so one of the biggest transition issues that I had was transitioning, especially with volume issues, is going from managing most of the department, but not all, to suddenly managing the entire department. And I wonder if you have any kind of a strategies you use to kind of help transition residents and seniors to the point where they're comfortable managing an entire department. Yeah, I think that's a really challenging topic and is not necessarily well taught uh, in residency because it, it is hard to do. Um, and so Teresa and Chan and I are actually doing a bit of a study right now looking at what different... Um, techniques people use to teach in the emergency department uh, to teach flow and management skills. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to get some insight into kind of what's commonly used and when people think they should use it. Um, but some strategies are um, running through the board and trying to prioritize your time. And so looking at, say you're responsible for the acute side of the department, looking at the patients that are in beds ready to be seen and trying to plan out how you're going to see them in terms of like efficiency as well as their acuity. Mm -hmm. um, 
talking to senior residents about how they're going to manage learners on shift, I think is really important. So giving that, them that responsibility early, I think is helpful because they have to decide um, whether or not they're going to get the learners to see a complicated pace that's going to maybe take them an hour um, while they go and see several people, or are they going to give them a procedure that might take up some time um, so you can keep going and flowing the department as well. So learning how to deploy learners, I think, is very useful. And then um, giving uh, senior residents graduated responsibility in terms of running an area of the department even, I think, is also helpful. Mm -hmm. So say you're on in the overnight shift and you've got a PGY 4 or 5, let them know they're going to be running the acute side while you go down to the RAS and take care of some of the lower acuity stuff. Mm -hmm. um, making sure you're letting the charge nurse know that as well so that the charge nurse is checking in with the senior resident when they have flow and bed management issues rather First than going to you. Kind of yeah. yeah, so at least they are get used to those kind of interruptions and management issues. Um, because I found that as a senior resident, unless the staff goes out of their way to do that, the charge nurse is going to go to the staff first. Yeah. And so you're not going to learn those kind of um, those kind of problems that you have to solve. Yeah. <laughs> I misread the hard way in Brampton. Is hmm. You can feel like you're going very, very fast, but then when you hit the wall of all the reassessments and then you start to really look at hmm. some of the things that maybe you didn't have to do and you compare yourself to some of the people that are extremely efficient, mm -hmm. so that think a lot harder about what tests they really need up front rather than kind of just kicking the can down the road a couple hours. Mm -hmm. That's something that I find that the senior residents maybe don't appreciate until they actually have to manage all the reassessments of the department. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're totally right. And I think that's something I definitely noticed as new staff as well is sometimes you think you're really crushing it and you're seeing a ton <laughs> yeah, of people. Off with your yeah. And then yeah. you grind to a halt because all of a sudden the tracker is full of red for all the reassessments that you've uh, been neglecting. Yeah. And so I think that I agree the staff that I've seen that are really efficient who do this well um, put a, all the thought in up front yeah. about what the plan is going to be in terms of a what tests you need. Uh, and so planning ahead. So if you think that you're probably going to end up needing a CTPE, getting like the blood work and creatinine ahead of time, even if you're doing a dimer first, yep. uh, is important making sure you've got the right line uh, too. And then trying to be strategic about balancing reassessments with seeing new patients. Mm -hmm. And so not just kind of leaving them all for four hours down the road, but um, popping in uh, to see a reassessment quickly and disposition them. If you know that they're, you know, as soon as that chest x-ray is back, this patient's sick enough, they have to come in. Um, go see them, get it done, then go see two new people rather than just continuously going through the new people and not moving anyone else. Yeah, well, that's something I probably don't probe uh, senior residents on. It's like, what's your approach to reassessing your mm -hmm. shift? It's probably something that, it's probably something that uh, should be brought up early in a shift. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think that's something we can probably do better with because uh, I feel like I did not really have that experience not as a senior resident. <laughs> and I feel like the staff like are often taking care of those reassessments and dispositions while you're seeing new people. And so you don't really acquire that skill. Yeah, it gives you an inflated idea of how well you're managing things until, yeah. until all the little things start to pile up when you're actually managing Maybe we need to yourself. back off on the reassessments <laughs> for the seniors. <laughs> So the other thing from the ED stat um, that I want to talk about was the uh, the S stands for setup, and so that's um, setting up the learners for success when they go to see a patient. So say you have a pretty new med student, they're fairly green and they're not really sure kind of what to do with this young person with chest pain, and so uh, you can probe them a little bit uh, before they even go see them by you know going through the chief complaint with them and maybe a bit of the triage history. Say what are a couple of things that you're worried about uh, for this patient. And so they may generate a couple of things that are right, maybe a couple of things that are wrong. But you can say, okay, good, you're worried about you know, pneumothorax and pericarditis. So what are some physical exam things you're going to need to do? What are some investigations you're probably going to have to do? And then that will at least put them on the right track for 
um, probing for important things on the history and physical, um, and then give them a sense of maybe what they're going to be looking at for investigations afterwards. Um, and so especially if it's a bit of a uh, stranger case or something that's not typical, or you have a really fresh learner, um, just giving them um, kind of a good starting point so they're not going in and just kind of throwing out random questions into the into the universe. They're actually um, targeting their history and physical exam. So the T in ED stat stands for teach, which I think is the, like, the big thing we think about. And it's like, this is kind of the core of uh, teaching on shift. Um, and I think there's like, five kind of things you can do with every case that are, um, are fairly helpful. Uh, and I try and do at least one learning point per case. Mm -hmm. I don't always achieve that, but I think if, you, if a learner sees like eight people over the course of a shift and you come away with eight teaching points, that's pretty good. So I try and make that a, a, a goal for me, at least, of giving them one teaching point per case. But kind of five steps you can do with each case is make sure you get a commitment from the learner. And so often they'll give you an awesome history and physical um, and then just stop. They'll be like, no, follow up on what I think this is, what the differential is, what I want to do. And so make sure you push them to, OK, what do you think is going on with this patient? What's your differential diagnosis? And then ask them what you want to do for the patient. And then if they do give you a commitment, probe for the supporting evidence. So if it's like a 25 year old and they're coming with shortness of breath and they think it's asthma, push them to why they think it's asthma or why they think it's a PE. And then teaching general rules like we talked about, I think is helpful as well. And so kind of what your approach is to chest pain in a young person or um, managing asthma in a, in a 65 year old. Giving them those general guidelines, I think is helpful for developing frameworks for, for learners to build off of. And then reinforcing what was done well, as well as correcting mistakes. And so if they're, um, and this is an example straight from ED stat, but if their like, number one diagnosis for a 20 year old with chest pain is ACS, I think that's something that you have to flag is probably not the most likely diagnosis there, right? But you can reinforce that it's, it's good they're thinking of the worrisome diagnosis, um, but kind of reinforce why you think that's probably not the case in this patient. Yeah, it's easy to feel overwhelmed as staff on a, mm -hmm. a new or old <laughs> on a shift when you have you know, 20 to be seen in the waiting room and you've got a full department and mm -hmm. head issues. And, um, yeah, and the importance of just even just doing tidbits along the way. And so you actually come away having taught something without absolutely. having to sit down and feel like you have to spend 10 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think you should have to like sit down and spend 10 minutes going through a whole approach to hyponatremia in the emergency department. I don't think that's the right place to do it. Um, because you're right, you don't have time when you have the pressure to provide patient care. Um, and it might not be as relevant uh, for the case. And so I think just picking like quick things you can talk about that are relevant to the patient they just saw are going to stick better for that learner for sure. And I think we like really underappreciate how valuable it is to take the time to correct their approach to um, history taking and physical exam if they're like a very junior like med student or resident and then generating a differential diagnosis and tailoring your investigations to that. Even just kind of giving them feedback around that part of it, I think is very valuable. Yeah, it's an interesting thing at St. Joe's now because we have the IAP physician exam. So a lot of the decision making is, mm -hmm. is being made in terms of the investigations up front. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the IAP, I haven't worked on a little bit, I guess, but uh, how, how would you suggest kind of tailoring um, some of the teaching, I guess, in terms of pushing them to come up with management suggestions? when they're coming with a patient that has already had all these investigations. Yeah, you're right. I think it's much more challenging. And I haven't worked there in a while, so I didn't have to deal with this quite as much. But I think you're right. I think it's tougher to teach around ordering investigations when those have all already been done for the patient. And so like, oh, I would order all of the things that have been done. <laughs> and you're like, well, I don't want to criticize my colleague up front. So absolutely. Um, I think you can still teach them about the general, those general rules for how you would work up 
a patient with chest pain or shortness of breath. And so probing them a bit on, you know, when do you order a D-dimer? When do you apply perk and wells and things like that for the person yeah. coming in with chest pain and shortness of breath? Um, so it might not be as relevant to that exact patient, but I think you can still probe around the, the general presentation in a more kind of case-based way. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud now. I wonder if it might be a good idea to uh, to have the the at least the junior residents see the patient before looking at investigations, and then maybe coming up with uh, phrasing it as now that you've done a complete history and physical with everything you know now, what would be your approach to the investigations? Because that's not always going to match up with what's been done at the front. Because often we will over investigate a little bit more, or even under investigate because we just have such a short amount of time. Maybe forcing them to think a little bit harder when they have more information. Yeah, absolutely. I think you could do that as part of your setup, especially if you're working at a site that had an initial assessment position and say, you know what, I, I want you to see the patient without looking at what's been done so far. In fact, without even looking at the IAP note and what the orders are, um, just so that you can go in fresh and then we'll talk about what you would do. We can look, see what's been done, kind of chat about why you would or wouldn't do these other investigations and see if we need to add anything else. Yeah. Yeah. This might become a, also an issue. I think there's departments that do kind of protocolized uh, what's essentially just a, a dumbed-down initial mm -hmm. assessment position. Mm -hmm. The patient comes in with chest pain, they get a protocolized kind of approach to testing, which I know some people here, mm -hmm. Dr. Crosley being one of them, <laughs> very strong opinions against, which I, which I can understand. But yeah. yeah, that definitely is a bit of a factor even here as well with um, like the nurse-driven uh, protocols up front. And so, yeah, an ED cardiac, um, so a troponin and an ECG being drawn, with their initial presentation, sometimes the learner has uh, information available to them, like even before they go see a patient, depending on how long they've been waiting. Uh, so it does change things a little bit, but I think it's helpful. Uh, you can use that as a teaching point as well when they come back and say, oh, I mean, the trope's negative. Do we need to do anything else? And we can talk a little bit about um, can you rule out certain things with just these uh, investigations? Because I think junior learners especially are very reliant on investigations. Yeah, and I, I was just actually, that was going to be one of my other questions while I'm just thinking is that um, we kind of grew up, grew up in the same era when it came to, came to education in the Royal College, but uh, just wondered if we're losing a lot of our kind of thought process in terms of, you know, we order ED Basic or whatever the equivalent is at whatever site with the CBC and all the electrolytes, and, and uh, probably people are generally not thinking about what in the CBC is actually going to change my management. And so good, uh, great preceptors for, for this kind of thing, like Dr. John Crosley, where he's like, every test you do should have some sort of purpose. And Dr. Purr as well, if you're, if you're not making a decision based on the test, then why are you learning in the first place? It's something I think that maybe is getting lost in a lot of our learners, and it's probably lost on us to some degree as well. I totally agree. Uh, I think you're right. I think when we were training, um, that was definitely our practice was just to order fairly standard order blood sets. And I think that's um, what I see now as well. And I do try and emulate some of our more senior and experienced colleagues who do have that good sense of like, what is this investigation going to do for you um, in terms of your differential diagnosis and the workup for this patient. So I think we should still continue to try and reinforce that if you're ordering an investigation, it should be um, helping impact because. your, it shouldn't be just because, exactly. Yeah. It shouldn't be just because I always get a CBC lights, BUN and creatinine in every patient I see. Because <laughs> yeah. if they have a laceration, you probably don't need to get those things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the A in ED stat stands for assess and give feedback. And I think it's important to do this, uh, not only uh, a little bit with every case, but also at least taking a, a moment to do it halfway through um, your shift with that learner. Because if you wait right until the end, um, then they have no opportunity to act on your feedback and try and improve. 
And so if you notice right up front that they're very disorganized with their cases, you can intervene on that. Um, but if it's something more subtle or you want to give them just some overall feedback or see how they're feeling about the shift, it's good to take a pause halfway through, um, especially if there's a transition between areas of the department or you need a break for like a little snack and some water. I think that's a good time to say, how are things going? Here's a little bit of feedback for you. This is what I want you to work on for the second half of the shift, because then you can actually observe if they've been able to make changes or not. Mm -hmm. And then the last letter of the EDSTAT acronym is teacher always. And so that's just really about being a good role model um, in terms of your behavior in the department, how you interact with consultants and allied health professionals, um, and also uh, just being uh, an approachable and supportive uh, teacher for that that student because sometimes they are you know fresh into clerkship or fresh into residency at a new site you know it's a new hospital for them they're nervous uh, and so just making sure they feel welcome and that you are um, interested in teaching them even if it's just little tidbits here and there uh, and try and involve them in interesting cases and resuscitations that come in I think that really uh, makes them feel welcome in the department and makes it a good experience even if um, you're not doing a ton of teaching throughout the shift as long as you're involving them in patient care and trying to give them some feedback and, feedback and, and tips as you go. I think that's helpful. Yeah, especially in the emergency pharma where we have this kind of somewhat unique uh, responsibility where we're the or staff or more senior uh, clinicians that have direct exposure to med students or junior mm -hmm. learners consistently through their rotation, which doesn't happen on many other rotations. So yeah, exactly. We have a lot. We have a lot of direct access as staff to junior learners, whereas you're right on other services. It's really the senior residents who are going to do the bulk of the teaching for those junior learners, uh, and so I think we do have a big opportunity to teach them a lot of the basics because we see such a wide variety of things in the emergency department. So even if they're going into something that's not emergency medicine, um, teaching them how to do a really good history and physical exam, teaching them how to develop an appropriate differential diagnosis and, and order their investigations appropriately, I think is useful for every specialty. The one last thing I wanted to uh, flag for people was um, the RIME model that we talked about. There's a really great um, blog post on the ICENET blog by Rob Woods um, that goes through those different, um, those different steps in the RIME model and then gives you an intervention to use for those different ones. So for instance, if they have a really disorganized history and physical, they're missing details, um, it directs you to the three-minute clinical presentation, which is a kind of a format you can get the learner to read or you can go through it together and say, you know what, this is how I want you to set up your presentation. So, do your thorough history and physical exam and then present it like this. Um, so try and intervene that way. And then for interpreter, if they're having trouble ordering um, tests or can't rank their differential diagnosis well, um, it talks about the one minute preceptor, which is another useful format to try and get a commitment out of them and, and probe them to why they're thinking the way they are. And uh, maybe just to imprint it in everyone's memory, is it possible for you to just go through the acronym for any stat there again? So yeah, absolutely. Um, so the E stands for expectations, so setting up expectations for the shift. D stands for diagnosis, so what is the educational diagnosis for the learner? What do they um, need for you to get them to the next level? S is for setup, so make sure you're setting them up for success with each patient they go see by giving them a couple of tips or a couple of things to try and look for on their history or physical exam. T is for teach, so uh, talking about all those different ways that you can um, quickly teach them some general rules or a tidbit about each clinical case that they see. It doesn't have to be a 10 minute lecture. A is for assess and give feedback. So try and assess them with every case and I try and give feedback at least halfway through the shift as well as at the end. And then T is for teacher always, so just be a good role model in the department. It's perfect. Yeah, because a lot of the stress that I always have with teaching not really having a structured approach to it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very helpful. Yeah. 
Um, maybe just before we close out, if you have any specific tips about uh, feedback, I know we spoke a little bit about it, but how do you approach that feedback for a learner at the end of the shift or during the shift? Or yeah, I think that's a really good question because I think this for me uh, still is a very challenging uh, part of teaching is giving uh, quality feedback to learners because I think it feels a bit awkward um, to give any sort of like critical or constructive feedback, but that's what we need to do to help people improve. Um, so what I try and start with is finding the right place. And so whether that's a quieter place or a more private place so that there's not a room full of you know three of their colleagues, I think it's helpful to give more um, useful feedback in that situation. Um, I ask them how they think the shift went, and so try and probe them for their understanding of how they're doing. And um, if they are kind of way off base, I think that's um, a bit of a flag that you're going to have to give some more blunt feedback. But if they're identifying things that they think they should work on and you agree, that's a helpful jumping off point to say, you know what, you're right, your differentials could use some work, and so I want you to approach your next couple of shifts with that in mind. Uh, and then make sure you give them some positive feedback as well. Try and um, encourage them in the areas that went well and what they did well that day. And then just you know be appreciative of their presence. Say that you know I, I enjoyed having you on shift today. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for your help today. Yeah, perfect. We'll probably hit you up for some more uh, specific stuff along the way because this is uh, something that we all need to probably be better at. And we definitely included in that. Yeah, I think it's something we all all try and work on every yeah. shift. Yeah, perfect. Great. Well, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone. So this is Teresa Chan giving you the summary of the section that we just went through with Dr. Alex Chorley and Dr. Brendan Trotter. Dr. Chorley, who is one of our clinician educators and the current Continuing Professional Development Director, has highlighted three pearls that you can take with you to your next shift. Pearl number one is to make sure to always to do a good setup and get to know your learner at the beginning of your shift. Number two is to take some time and create some scripts that you can teach from on a regular basis. That way, when you have a new med student in the new shift, you can just repeat the same thing that you've done before. Practice makes perfect. And the last thing is to really drill down and get a commitment from your learner about the plan. A lot of learners will whiff waffle around this, but it's important for their learning for you to actually get a plan from them get them to commit. Even if they're wrong or incomplete, the act of committing is really important for their learning. That way they can compare their plan to yours. All right, so that's the snapshot of what we just heard from Dr. Alex Chorley. If you're interested in more Teaching Pearls, we're going to be developing a new series called Teaching That Counts, and it'll be co-hosted by myself and Dr. Alim Naji, one of our clinical teaching unit directors here at McMaster University. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello everyone, and welcome to Residence Corner. I'm your host, Joanna, and with me today, I have one of my fellow colleagues, Dr. Ali Mula, a PGY4 at McMaster FRCP Emergency Medicine Program. Hi. Ali, thanks for being here. Have you ever been on a shift and got some notice ahead of time that a bus crash just happened 10 minutes away from your hospital and you're about to receive an influx of patients? Or maybe that you're about to receive multiple patients with injury from a stampede at a Raptors parade as fans were fleeing from the area where gunshots were heard. And now you find out your ER is also receiving a couple of patients with gunshot wounds. Do you feel ready to deal with that influx? Where will the new critical patients be placed in your bedlocked emergency department? 
who will triage them? Do you have enough staff on? Are you prepared to deal with the medical, logistical, and emotional demands of this incident? Ali is a fourth-year, soon-to-be fifth-year emergency medicine resident who spent his subspecialty year in the field of disaster medicine. Tell us a little bit about why you chose to do your fellowship in disaster medicine. So I've always been interested in uh, international health and humanitarian response, primarily looking at kind of engaging with different organizations in the sector, things like um, MSF, uh, International Red Cross, WHO. Um, so disaster medicine was kind of a way for me to be able to deal with um, both the emergency aspect and the emergency medicine aspects, as well as uh, kind of the international humanitarian response aspects of care in this field. So it sounds like you knew quite early on that you were interested in this type of work, if I may say so. And unfortunately, it seems like there's a need for it, especially in Canada, like you were telling me earlier, to train more people that are uh, prepared or know how to deal with disasters. What does the year entail specifically for you and where is it currently offered? So my program was the uh, European Masters of Disaster Medicine. Um, it's offered actually out of a, a university based out of Italy. It's uh, the University de Piemonte Orientale. I'm sure I completely butchered that. Um, so that's where my program was based out of. It's actually a uh, co sponsored and affiliated with a number of different organizations, including uh, MSF, the WHO, the University of Brussels, um, as well as Geneva. Um, and it consists of kind of an online component for a large part of the year where you actually complete online simulations, lectures, uh, kind of tabletop exercises all online. But then you actually go and complete a residential portion in Italy where you're face to face with a number of lecturers, a number of experts in the field uh, who kind of put you through your paces and, and where you learn a lot of your practical skills. Sounds like a very well-rounded year in terms of both the practical component of it as well as the more didactic learning. And it sounds like there's a number of different training programs and routes to get to it. Now, you did the one in Italy, or rather the international one. What are some of the other uh, ways that people can get training in disaster medicine here locally within Canada? So I think one of the more traditional ways to, to go through disaster medicine is, is through um, EMS. Uh, and I think that's probably the most common way that people get exposed to uh, disaster management and disaster medicine. So that's definitely an option. And, and I mean, there's EMS fellowships at a number of different universities that you can do. Um, the University of Calgary actually has a focused competency in disaster medicine that uh, people can engage in. McGill actually also has an elective in mass gathering and disaster medicine. Um, and then there's a number of different uh, certifications that you can also do either through college-based uh, diploma in disaster management, as well as uh, from a humanitarian aspect based out of actually Harvard. And McGill also has a, a program that you can do uh, called Humanitarian U. So different routes to get to it. Now, how did you actually specifically get involved? Like, I know you told us that your interest started very early on, even before going into emergency medicine. But for you specifically, from a practical perspective, was it one experience? Was it one mentor? What was it for you? Um, so luckily, my first experience to actual kind of disaster medicine, disaster management, was through our own disaster sim day that I was involved in as a PGY-1 resident, where I played the role of a patient. Um, and just seeing the... Uh, amount of people involved, the amount of teamwork that's involved in something like that, and kind of the logistical considerations. It was kind of one of the things that, that really got me interested and, and made me want to get further involved. Mm -hmm. 
And now speaking as someone who participated in the PGY-1 disaster sim last year as a PGY-1 myself, you organized that one, correct? So it was myself and uh, Dr. Chris Hyde, who actually kind of took the lead on organizing it. I helped out a lot with it and it was uh, it was fun. And just having that sort of mentorship with a number of different people here um, is definitely one of the things that makes me want to continue. Mm-hmm. And we've actually gotten a chance to speak to Dr. Chris Hyde in another section uh, of this podcast. Now, tell us a little bit more, if you can, about how you guys came about to uh, organize this disaster day for all the residents. It's definitely a long process to uh, kind of organize a disaster day or a mass casualty simulation. Uh, We're actually going through the same process this year. Um, I can say that from this year, I mean, we've started about a year in advance to try to get people involved, including uh, EMS personnel, nursing, uh, other physicians kind of from local and surrounding areas involved, uh, as well as starting to collect the supplies, design the scenario, and decide on kind of what aspects of disaster management we really want to focus on for uh, our residents and, and for training purposes. Definitely sounds like a lot of work, but speaking as someone on the receiving end last year, it truly was a great experience and a very much a healthy learning environment for all the residents and all of the allied health. Now, specifically when it comes to your year of training within disaster medicine, is there specific aspects of the year that you really loved? Is there specific aspects of the year that you found very challenging, thinking about the fellowship year as a whole? So I think as a whole, as a disaster medicine fellowship, one of the major things you really start to enjoy is, is the other people that are interested in it. Um, obviously, whenever you're engaging with other people with similar interests, it's enjoyable. Uh, but one of the great things about the program that I was involved in is that it had an international focus. Um, so there were people from all over the world involved, people from Sudan, people from uh Israel, uh, individuals working in Italy and Denmark. Um, So really across the board, pretty much every continent, I think, was actually represented. So uh, that really gives you a good um, understanding of of how systems work uh, in other regions, but it also gives you a little bit of a greater insight into what people are doing in other regions and how Mm. that can be applied to to how things are um, being done back home. In terms of kind of challenges, um, so I mean balancing, you know, work life is always going to be a challenge. Um, I think one of the big things was because it has an international focus, I'd be on the phone for a lecture with other people from Australia. And it was uh, 9am here, but it was 4am there and vice versa. So getting people together was always a challenge. But honestly, just the uh, positive uh, outcomes and the and the things you learn from doing such uh, an experience um, heavily outweighs uh, any of the challenges. A very unique experience indeed. And it's provided you both with challenges as well as rewards throughout the whole year and probably for the future by the sounds of it. Now, switching gears a little bit more towards our listeners, why do you think this fellowship is important for future eMERGE residents or training in this topic is important, whether that's current staff, future staff, current medical students and residents and such? And is it formal training that they need? Is it some hands-on experience? What do you think would be the best going forward? So I think you've already kind of spoke about some of these things when you kind of opened up the podcast. So we know that disasters are occurring at a a greater rate uh, than ever before. Um, That's definitely probably also due to kind of an increased amount of reporting. But we know that we're having uh, an increased number of disasters, both from non-natural as well as kind of natural hazards. These are the patients we end up seeing in the emergency department. Uh, Disaster medicine is one of the things uh, we own I'd say within emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's something that 
directly affects us when something like this happens. I always talk about them being kind of low frequency, but they're very, very high risk events. And it's something that I think we need to be prepared for. In terms of kind of why residents should be interested in it, I'd say it's it's because uh, it's an area that hasn't seen a lot of research, hasn't seen a lot of uh, academic uh, involvement. Uh, and it's an area that's kind of uh, ripe for further kind of study and further understanding. You could have a, a huge impact just by getting a little bit of increased exposure and getting more of an understanding of uh, how to proceed with disaster management. My recommendations to kind of start is help out on a disaster sim, um, come out, be a patient, get some level of exposure to disaster medicine, disaster management. And I think you'll gain an appreciation for all of the things that actually need to go right in order for the management of uh, one of these scenarios to be successful. For those of us who are still trying to decide this subspecialty year, definitely some hints here and opportunities to try and keep in mind, right, going forward in the future. If there's one take-home message in addition to you knowing more now about disaster medicine, what would you leave your listeners with? So I would say know where your disaster plan is. Um, every hospital is mandated to have one. Know where it is know how to activate it, and know your role within it. Because when you do need it, that's not really the time when you want to go looking for it. You want to be ready and prepared to respond. Well, I definitely have some work to do and go and figure out where ours is in our hospital. But I certainly look forward to the next uh, project of yours. And specifically, uh, I know the one coming up is the next big disaster simulation that we have uh, in September. Uh, well, thank you, Ali, for being here and speaking to us. And it was great to have you. Thank you. And to our listeners, see you all next time. Bye. Hi, this is Teresa Chan. I just want to thank you so much for listening to another episode of a Mac Emerge podcast. If you like our podcast, please support us by liking us and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. In addition, if you'd like to come and be a guest on our show, make sure you write us at Mac Emerge, M-A-C-E-M-E-R-G, podcast p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com and so because it's july i'd like to welcome all of our new mac emerge residents both in our regional campuses and in our main campus who have joined our mac emerge family and we're looking forward to having you as part of our crew this year and please send us some bat signals or some emails or any way to get a hold of us and let us know some of your insights. Thanks so much for listening and look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>